We're looking at this week's Advent text that got me reflecting on something, uh, the importance of buildings in my life. Some that I consider to be significant, some just kind of special for different reasons, and a few even almost like sacred or holy type spaces. And so I was brought back down memory lane this past week. Our friends Howard and Julie Anderson were here last week. They were visiting from Virginia. And it turns out, and Linda, this is for you too, it turns out that we lived in the same little town in Hudson, Ohio that Linda lived in also, which is weird because it is really, really small. Um, And so Julie and Howard had gone visiting Hudson, Ohio, and she sent me this picture. If I turn my thing on, it's going to be helpful, and then we'll see if it works. Okay, so she sent me this picture. That's the church that I grew up in as a little kid, First Congregational Church of Hudson, Ohio. Um, Yeah, and Linda, too. How weird. This is impossible. The chances of this are one in millions, right? Um, It's incredible. But I have incredible memories of this church. Like, one of them is tormenting my poor mother in worship every Sunday. Um, Oh, man, as I look back as an adult, I feel so bad for what I did to that poor woman. Um, But the second is this third grade Sunday school class that I had. I've never forgotten it. And so the teacher, I remember, still remember his name, Mr. Bill Larson. This is a guy who taught third grade Sunday school for 27 years. He passed away a few years ago. And actually, I was like moved to the point where I wrote him. I had written him a letter a few years ago saying I remembered his class and that what he did had made a difference for me, right? This building, these things took place um, in, in this building. And they're, they're like these, this building to me, it's nostalgic, not just for the building itself, but because of the important role, mostly that people and that God played in my life through uh, this physical space. Now, I've been to other, um, all kinds of houses of worship in different parts of the world. Another one stood out to me. I was in Peru. Um, we were vacationing in Peru, and we went to the cathedral in Cusco, Um, that was built by the Spanish in order to move the Quechua people, the descendants of the Incas, to Roman Catholicism, right? And so this cathedral, for me, when I entered it, was unlike anything I'd ever seen. It actually elicited different things in me, anger at the Spanish colonialism that would destroy these sacred Inca temples and then use those stones to build this cathedral, right? All on the backs of slave labor like that. Man, when I learned that, when I walked into the space, I was like, ooh, Man, this this space had a weight, a gravity to it. Um, But also, the other side was um, some of the incredible artwork that was in in this space, that they had commissioned these uh, local Cusco artists who painted all the murals throughout this uh, incredible cathedral. And so in the heart of this former Inca capital in Cusco hangs this one-of-a-kind painting, right? And so this is what I remember about this building. It's a painting of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples. Now, when you think of the meal that Jesus had with his disciples, what two foods come to mind? Bread and wine, okay? Which is interesting because in 1753, this local Quechua artist, Marcos Zapata, who was a student at this famous Cusco school, was commissioned to paint Jesus and the disciples sitting down to the Last Supper, any guesses on what the disciples ate? A guinea pig. Local, do you see the picture? It's, it's hysterical. 
there's a little guinea in the center of the table of Jesus and his disciples, right? We, I saw this picture, and the tour guide was talking about how this artist is like sticking it to his colonial, <laughs> Spanish colonial too. They're paying him to do this. And this is his local flair, his interpretation of Jesus' Last Supper um, with a guinea pig, which is like local Peruvian cuisine, right? So we tasted it. It's like Kentucky Fried Chicken is what it tasted like to me. Um, tastes just like KFC. And so like, I'm not going to forget this cathedral, mostly because when we got to this painting, like Katie, we were like almost crying. We were laughing so hard um, at this beautiful thing. And then there's this, this guinea pig in the middle of the, the Last Supper. Um, I'm not going to forget it because of that. But I've also worshipped in totally different kinds of spaces, right? Places in Haiti and Nicaragua. These were um, like buildings without any electricity or running water. Dirt floors. These are chapels made with sticks by the poorest of the poor, and yet we still had these incredible, meaningful worship experiences in these spaces too. So whether it's the grandest of cathedrals that I've been in or these humblest of dirt floor chapels, right? It's God's presence among us that is what makes our, what we say our space is holy or sacred. It's not the space itself, but it's God's presence in that space. So does this get for anyone, does this get anyone thinking, anyone have any important buildings in their life? Does this bring back any memories for anyone? I'm just curious. Is that the only one? No? Other people can, things, things come to mind? We'll keep those in mind. So for the, uh, you know, for these, uh, the people in Jerusalem, the temple was such a building for the Jewish people. And so we remember that this temple, where we've been the last couple weeks, this temple has been destroyed by the Babylonians. They've taken the people from Jerusalem. They've exiled them away. And for 50 years, the people have been away from their home. All right? So they've been longing to come back. Last week, we looked at this hopeful return of these exiles. Today, we're actually going to look at their actual return to Jerusalem and the beginnings to rebuild this sacred, holy temple that had been destroyed. And this is the interesting thing to me, and we're going to get to this at the end, but this elicited two things, shouts of praise and celebration, but also the hard part, it elicited mournful tears of lament, right? These two things. And what we're going to see is that these two things go together. Will you pray with me? Speak to us, Lord, through the waiting, the watching, the hoping, the singing, the longing, the celebration. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. Amen. All right, here we go from Ezra. This is getting close to the end of the Hebrew Bible. We're going to read from Ezra 1, 1 to 4, 3, 1 to 4, and 10 to 13, and make some, see if we can make some sense out of this, all right? In the first year, King Cyrus of Persia, in order that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia, so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also a written edict declared. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem and Judah. Any of those among you who are his people, may their God be with them. They're now permitted to go up to Jerusalem and Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. 
and let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods, with animals beside free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. When the seventh month came, the Israelites were in the towns, the people gathered together in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, with his kin, set out to build the altar of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it as prescribed in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundation because they were in dread of their neighboring peoples, and they offered burnt offerings upon it to the Lord morning and evening. And they kept the festival of booths as prescribed and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the ordinance as required for each day. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments were stationed to praise the Lord with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, according to the directions of King David of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever towards Israel. And all the people responded with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the families, old people who had seen the first house on its foundations, wept with a loud voice when they saw this house, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. For the people shouted so loudly that the sound was heard far away. It's the word of the Lord. Weeping and shouting together, not being able to be distinguished from one another. This is some strange stuff. We're going to get into it. And so in 458, some historical context, Ezra, the reformer, leads a group of exiles on a return trip from Babylon after being gone for over 50 years. It's the fourth, it's, it was a four-month journey, right? No military escort. He is armed with a copy of the Torah and this edict that was given to him by Cyrus, the king of the Persian Empire. Now, if anyone's ever, remember this old movie, uh, what's it called? Gunfight at the OK Corral, okay? There's a, there's a famous line in that that says, I learned one rule about gunslingers. There's always a man faster on the draw than you are. And the more you use a gun the sooner you're going to run into that man, right? Like Babylon, who had crushed Jerusalem and exiled the people, they have now run into the faster draw in King Cyrus of Persia. And so the Persian Empire is actually considered to be the world's first mega empire, controlling over 6 million square kilometers of land. And so what's happened historically is that these exiled people from Jerusalem they now find themselves under Cyrus's rule. There's a few notable things about Cyrus that make him really unique, actually almost brilliant among the empire builders of his day, where the Babylonians, what they did was control and dominate by violence and exile. This is their strategy, almost terrorism, really. Cyrus is different. Cyrus conquered, and then he gave freedom back to his subjects. He allowed them to live by their own ancestral laws. 
Also highly worth noting is that Cyrus is the only foreigner in scripture to be called God's anointed. This is highly, highly unusual. That is a messianic term of the highest praise. It is actually shocking. Cyrus was seen to the ancient Israelites as a hero, a savior almost, because he allowed these exiled Jews to go home and rebuild their beloved temple. So Ezra links the return home of these exiles to one of the prophets who we looked at two weeks ago, Jeremiah, and he says three things. This is what Jeremiah's hope was, right? Eventually, there will be a return, a rebuild, and a restoration. This is what Jeremiah hoped for, a return home to Jerusalem, a rebuilding of the destroyed temple, and a restoration of this community that was decimated. So King Cyrus of Persia, directed by God, the scripture says, makes this hope a possibility. Now, life was really tough for these returning exiles. After being gone for 50 years, their new neighbors, they don't want them there. They're not interested. So they have a tough time with their neighbors. Their beloved city, when they return to it, is in a complete pile of rubble. This is what they return to. Imagine uh, some of the homes that we lost back here after the fires. Returning to that type of scenario is what they're returning to. Now, we know the importance of the temple. We started off with these like sacred or holy buildings. The importance of it's almost impossible to overstate. It was quite literally thought to be God's house, the place where God resided and lived among the people. It was also thought to be the place where heaven and earth intersected. Okay? And so you can see why they're so devastated at its destruction and why they were so eager to rebuild it. Rebuilding would give the people a chance to worship once again in God's house. More importantly, in God's presence. So you're exiled, you're gone, you're away from your home for over 50 years. They were wondering, did God forget about us? Right? And so they want to rebuild this temple uh, because that's the place where God lived. That's the place they would literally go to meet with God. And so it says that the people were freely giving of themselves um, in order to get this temple rebuilt going. They come together uh, to accomplish something that for over 50 years they probably had thought would be completely impossible. And so with the construction of the altar, they begin to worship again in the temple. It finally has been restored. They assign these Levites, they're just temple priests, they put them in charge of the building, um, and then they move on to laying the temple's foundation. Now, in Advent, one of the strongest themes that runs throughout Advent is this idea of now, but not yet. Okay? Now, but not yet. Christ has come, but Christ has not returned. The kingdom of God is present and yet not complete. The temple being rebuilt, they ran into all kinds of problems rebuilding it. They actually had to abandon the work, and for 20 years, this temple remained unfinished. Now, but not yet. And so they began to lay the temple's foundation, right? And they have this, you know, but at least the one thing that we can say is at least these people's dreams of returning have been restored. They have begun the rebuilding. Community is beginning to be restored. These dreams have come true, and they have this celebratory, like, 
on top of the new foundation that they're building that was built right on top of the first foundation of the temple, and they hold this giant celebration. It's this huge, joyous celebration where people are getting ready for a party, right? Like we're getting ready for Christmas. Priests are in their vestments, the trumpets are blowing, people are banging cymbals, um, they're lifting up their shouts of praise and they're singing their hearts out, but something happened that is, when I got to this point, I just, it like stopped me in my tracks. It was completely unexpected for me. And it was also just deeply profound, along with the shouts of joy were heard the sounds of weeping. Strange, don't you think? Like, why? What is going on? It says that the two sounds, this joy and this weeping, they could not be distinguished from one another. Someone had thrown a wet blanket on the party, right? Who was it? Who threw this wet blanket, and why did they do it? Ezra says it was the older folks that threw the wet blanket on the party. You get to think about this. Why is this happening? Why is it the older folks? Guess what? The older you get, the more life experience you have, right? The more life experience you have, the more sorrow and the more loss that you experience. You have had to deal with more. And so the older people, guess what? They had worshiped in the first temple. They remembered what it was like. They'd been there. They remembered what life was like. They remember what their community life was like before Babylon came, laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, where soldiers had killed their family members, where people had starved by siege for a year and a half. They remember their family members who were lost. And they are at this celebration. They're looking at the foundation being laid right over the pile of rubble that was the first temple. And what does it do? It is a vivid reminder to them of everything that they had lost. And that's how the sounds of weeping and the sounds of joy mingled together so that they were not distinguishable from one another, right? And so I, this is just incredible. I was wondering if Ezra isn't on to something important, particularly something important during our holiday season, maybe more important during a holiday season, that joy and tears belong together. This profound lesson ties in with Advent because it's an honest experience that many of us feel around Christmas time, right? We find ourselves in this joyful season, filled with good food, good music, with family, with friends, with good cheer, but do we always feel in the holiday spirit? We don't. This is an honest, like this, this scripture to me, you have to teach this with integrity. We have to tell the truth, right? Like, I'm a happy person. I'm sitting in Joanne's with my poor kids last night, dancing in line and singing Christmas carols, wasn't I? Right? That's what I do, embarrassing my family members, right? I just walk around doing this all the time. Like, during the month of December, I am like, I'm all over the place. I'm dancing, singing, having fun or whatever. But do I always feel like I'm in 
No, you don't, you don't sustain. That's not sustainable. I can't go around for 30 days doing that. <laughs> I mean, maybe I could, but I don't think so. You know, so it's like we, the other side of it, right? The other side is honoring the pain of what has been lost as we await the fulfillment of God's promises through Jesus. Joy mixes with tears, and at times the two cannot be distinguished from one another. And so during the Christmas season, the gravity of loss is more acute for a lot of people. We celebrate, but we do so with some weight, right? For me personally, I'm going to share something I don't ever talk about. We'll see how I do. To me, every December comes with a very painful memory. I don't talk about it. I've never spoken about it in a sermon. Um, And there's good reason for that. I don't want to. But when I read this story, God brought someone to mind. My old college roommate who committed suicide. Okay? December comes with this memory every single year. There's nothing I can do about it. We were expecting our friend Sam to come home for winter break, like all the other kids come home for winter break. Sam didn't come home that winter break, right? He was supposed to be there, but he wasn't. I remember this like it was yesterday. And so those of us that have experienced the mixed feelings that come with the holidays, we understand where these people in Jerusalem, these exiled uh, people from Jerusalem, we understand this, that joy and sorrow, that shouts of joy and celebration mix with the sound of weeping. We get this. It made me think about one of our great living Catholic teachers. Any Richard Rohr fans out here have read his stuff? A couple people. Um, he's He's incredible in this subject matter, and he says something that really stood out to me. He talks about the fact that great love and great suffering are our two primary spiritual teachers. Why is that? Because every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth has experienced great love, and if they have not yet, they will experience great suffering. And so he says that suffering can lead us in one of two directions, bitterness, which closes us down, or compassion, which opens us up. And in his language, allowing us to fall into the hands of the living God. Father Rohr invites us to pray for the grace of this second path. And so in the season of Advent, we celebrate. There's a lot to celebrate. We celebrate the coming of the Savior. We lift up shouts of praise. We sing these songs of joy. We've already sung a couple of them today. We're not done yet. But what happens when we're just not feeling it? What happens when we just aren't feeling like we're in this Christmas spirit? We're all going to have those moments, right? We could choose to beat ourselves up over it because we're supposed to be happy, right? We could do that. Why am I like this? I don't understand. Why am I feeling this? I'm supposed to be happy, you know? Or we can honor the pain of what has been lost as we await the fulfillment of the kingdom that Jesus ushered in, the now, but is not yet complete. The now, but not yet. And both of these are okay, because both of them belong together. So maybe the season of Advent could be a gift, because it offers us a place 
where we come together as we really are, where we don't have to pretend, okay? We can wear some fun sweaters and have some fun, but we don't have to pretend that we're always feeling like we're in the holiday spirit. We walk through Advent's joys and struggles together with each other and with the Holy Spirit who dwells in us and with us, and we hold on to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen.